G'day everyone, great to see you all. Let's pray before we look at Hebrews together. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, have been learning from the book of Hebrews how important it is that as we hear your voice, we should not harden our hearts but listen to it. So today, as we hear your voice, we pray that we would respond to it in faith, in repentance where necessary, trusting that your word is good to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm a reasonably confident person, other than when it comes to using the clicker, but uh, that's all right. I'm a reasonably confident person. Uh, I can get up in front of hundreds of people and speak. Uh, I, can, I don't get nervous when I'm doing something new. I'm very confident. Very few things make me nervous. But for some reason, even today, 30 years since I left school, if I walk into a school principal's office, I feel nervous. So when I go and talk to the principal of the school around there, he has no power over me. But I start to sweat. I start to think, are there things I need to confess? Uh, are there things I've done wrong? And it probably goes back to when I was at school and I did have lots to confess. Uh, I remember one of my schools in Brisbane, it was a big old sandstone school, and everything about the principal's office was designed to make you fearful. It was, it was, you went down this long, dark corridor, and, and on the corridor were the portraits of the previous headmasters. And so as you walk past, they all, for some reason, had their portrait done when they were old, angry men. Uh, And it was like their eyes were following you as you walked down. So by the time you got to the big door, and it was a big wooden door, you already felt like it's all over. And I remember the first time when I went to this new school, I remember I got to the door of his office, and the door opened, and another boy walked out with tears in his eyes. And I thought, oh no. And I I was only going to get a a form signed or something. I wasn't even in trouble, but my legs just went to jelly. You know, it was sort of like, oh, I made it, I'm guilty. Imagine going into the heavens, into the throne room of the holy God of the universe. Uh, A sinner like you or me going into the heavens, into the presence of the perfect and righteous God. If that idea doesn't make you quake with fear, that's only because we don't understand ourselves well enough and we don't understand God well enough. Uh, We don't understand God's perfect holiness, his separateness, and we don't understand our inherent sinfulness, our rebellion against that holy God. God is not some cuddly old uncle who you just sort of wander into his room and say hello. God is righteous, God is holy, God is awesome, God is to be feared above all others. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah entered into the heavenly throne room of God and this was his reaction, Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, then I said, woe is me for I am ruined. Woe is me because I am a sinner, I cannot stand in the presence of God. That is the reality for us all. You see, for us to come before God, something needs to happen. Uh, something needs to happen. We need to be washed clean. And more than that, we need what the Bible calls a mediator, uh, a representative, what the Old Testament calls a priest to stand between us and God, to open up the way to God. And that's what makes this passage we're looking at today so wonderful, because it tells us Jesus is that mediator. Jesus is that priest for us. Uh, Jesus is the reason we can approach the God of the universe with confidence, despite our sinfulness. So look with me at verse 14 in our passage, chapter 4, verse 14, says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. 
The thing is, I think we just sort of skate over that verse and we don't realise how wonderful it is. You see, this idea that Jesus is our high priest is actually the most wonderful truth. Uh, And I want to show you why today. But to understand why, you need to actually understand what Old Testament priests did. So you've actually got to have a bit of a history lesson to understand why this verse is so wonderful. I remember watching a movie about the way they communicated in secret codes during the Second World War. It was one of those movies from the 1950s. Have you ever noticed how those movies are much slower than our movies today? They're sort of therapeutic, but I managed to stay awake for it. But in the story, uh, the lady was in the office in London and she was like the secretary. And the, the code came through, the message came through, and it didn't make any sense to her. She had no knowledge of how urgent it was or how wonderful it was. It was just random words. Then she takes it into the general or whoever it was in the movie and he reads it and he starts laughing and crying and and, and hugging the woman and she doesn't know what's going on but it's because he knows the code. It's because he knows the meaning of the words. He knows this message is great news that they've won the battle or whatever it is. Well for us to understand how wonderful it is that Jesus is our great high priest, the code if you like is the Old Testament. The the knowledge you need is the Old Testament. You have to understand what an Old Testament priest did before you really grasp how wonderful Jesus is, how wonderful this verse is. And that's what this passage does for us. So come with me into it. I want to jump down to chapter 5. So our first heading is the Old Testament priest. This is chapter 5, 1 to 4. So if you look from verse 1, it says, For every high priest taken from men is appointed in service to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That was the the main job of the priests in the Old Testament. They were men, they were human beings, and they were appointed by God to serve God on behalf of the people. And so they went to meet with God at the tabernacle or at the temple, uh, and that was where God symbolically dwelt. So the tab- when you read about the tabernacle, the tent where they went to before they built the temple, and then when you read about the temple, it was designed as a model of the heavens. It was a model of the place where God actually sits. And so the point was, you as a person could not go in. You could not go into this place because you were unclean. So the priest acted as a go-between. The priest acted as a mediator and he offered gifts on your behalf to God. Gifts of thanksgiving but he also offered sacrifices for your sin. So a lamb or a calf was killed, and that showed how serious sin is and how a price needed to be paid for your sin And because the, the wages of sin is death, so he offered a lamb in your place. And a good priest helped people in their weakness. If you look at verse 2, it says, He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also subject to weakness. Because the priest himself was a human being like us with his own struggles, his own weaknesses. He is able to empathise with us and support us when we're struggling. But that weakness of the priest was also a problem. Look at verse 3. It says, because of this, he must make a sin offering for himself as well as for the people. See, because the priest was a sinner like everyone else, he couldn't just march on in there and offer a sacrifice on your behalf. He had to offer a sacrifice on his own behalf before he could offer one on your behalf. He couldn't do anything about your sin. You see, and more than that, the priests, they came and went. They died and had to be replaced with a new priest over and over again. And so you had to keep appointing a new one, a new descendant of Aaron. That was the family that the priests were drawn from. So that was the Old Testament priest. I've put all this on a table in your outlines. 
uh, and it's there on the screen. What do you see? You see Old Testament priests, they were appointed by God. They served in the temple, the copy of the heavens. They offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. They were a man who could empathise with our weakness because they themselves were weak, but they were a sinner and they needed to be replaced from the line of Aaron. Now, that was a good system. Uh, It did its job for the Old Testament people of God, but it was always pointing to something better. It was always designed to be temporary. That is what the Old Testament does. It gets us ready for the complete picture. It gets us ready for God's final answer, the Lord Jesus. And so let's go there now. So our second heading is the greater high priest. And this is chapter 5, verses 5 to 10. So that picture of an Old Testament priest in your minds... Now we can see what it means that Jesus is our great high priest. We can see how Jesus is in some ways the same as those Old Testament priests, but then infinitely better. And you might want to complete the table. If you're someone who takes notes, you might want to complete the table on your outline. I left it blank. So the first thing is, just like they were appointed by God, well, Jesus was appointed by God, exactly the same. He didn't appoint himself. And you see that there in verses 5 and 6. Look down at verses 5 and 6. God says to Jesus, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I'm going to leave the Melchizedek bit until chapter 7. I don't want to steal the thunder of chapter 7 when we deal with that more fully. So if you're intrigued by that, wait for a couple of weeks. But the point is, Jesus was appointed by God just like the Old Testament priests. Second thing, They served in the temple. They served in the model of God's throne room. They served where God symbolically dwelt. But Jesus is infinitely better because he goes into the heavens themselves. And you see that in chapter 4, verse 14. Jump back there. You can see that there, but I'll come back to that one later. Jesus serves in the heavens the real presence of God. Thirdly, they offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. They offered the blood of lambs and goats Well, Jesus offers gifts on our behalf in the same way. And he did that while he was here on earth. Look at verse 7. It says, chapter 5, verse 7, it says, During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And we see this all through the Gospels. Whenever you're reading the Gospels, you see how Jesus constantly prayed for his disciples and for his people, pleading with God on our behalf. But especially you see it, in those end parts of the Gospels, in those last days before Jesus died, how Jesus prayed and prayed for his disciples. You see it in John 17. You might want to go and read it later on. You see it in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed through tears. But of course, the ultimate gift, the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made was the sacrifice of his own body. The Old Testament sacrifices, they had to be done again and again and again and again, every year, all the time. But Jesus died once and for all, to pay the price for our sins. So Jesus offered the final sacrifice for sin. Fourth thing, just like the Old Testament priests, Jesus is a human being who can empathise with us in our weakness. Now again, I'll come back to that in a moment. Fifthly, and of course the big difference is, that the priests of the Old Testament were sinners themselves. And of course they were because they were people like us. But while Jesus is a human being, he is also the Son of God. And that meant that unlike all the other priests, he was perfectly obedient. And that's what verse 8 is about. Go down to verse 8. It says, though he, Jesus, was God's Son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, don't misunderstand those verses as if somehow Jesus wasn't obedient and he wasn't perfect before. He was obedient from the very beginning. He was God's son. But in coming as a man, Jesus lived out his obedience and became everything he was meant to be. If you like, he had the opportunity to learn how to be obedient as a human being by obeying God, even up to the point of dying for our sins. At each point, as Jesus underwent new trials, he learned how to be obedient to God at that point, right through to the point of perfection. That's the point it's making. And then finally, the Old Testament priests came and went, but Jesus is eternal. Verse 9 again, look at it, it says, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. We never need to find a new way to God. It's not like there was the Old Testament system, then there was the New Testament system, and then there's going to be the new, New Testament system. No, Jesus is the eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus is it once and for all. So if you look at our table again, you can see how the ways Jesus is the same as the Old Testament priests and the way he's infinitely better. As I said before, that is all really interesting, and thanks for sticking with me through it. I'm being aspirational there. Thanks for sticking with me. And I hope, like me, you are always amazed by how Jesus completes the Old Testament, how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. But you might be thinking, that's only of academic interest. Uh, I mean, I already know Jesus is better than any earthly priest. Of course he is. He's the Son of God. Uh, So now I want to show you why this is such wonderful news. So I want you to come with me and why this is so important. And to do that, we need to go back to chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. So come with me into these verses, because this is where the rubber hits the road. So verse 14, which I said is that wonderful verse, we have this incredible news. It's telling us we have this incredible high priest. He is the Son of God. He is not like the priests of the Old Testament. He is alive forever. He stands not in a temple on this earth, but in the heavens. He stands in the very presence of God representing us, which might make you think, therefore, he is distant and therefore he is unapproachable. It might make you think Jesus could never understand me. Jesus could never understand my day-to-day struggles, my pains, my temptations. Then we get verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way, as we are, yet without sin. And this is so important, and this is the wonderful news of this passage. The Son of God in the heavens, firstly, was tested or tempted in every way like we are, but secondly, he never gave in and sinned. And so thirdly, he can totally understand and totally sympathise with our struggles and with our temptations. And sometimes I hear people respond to this and they say, no, 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 Jesus really doesn't get it because Jesus never sinned, so he doesn't know what a real temptation is like, not like a sinner like me. Uh, Jesus lived a sheltered life, so he can't really understand my struggles. Well, the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis wrote a great response to that. This is what he said. He said, a silly idea is current. It's funny how silly ideas stay silly ideas right through history. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. 
Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. You see, Jesus can understand the power of temptation better than we ever can. Because many of us don't really know the power of temptation because we give in after about 20 seconds. Jesus never gave in. Jesus was constantly battling human weakness. Jesus was constantly battling when we had given in long ago. Jesus can sympathise with any pain you feel because he experienced pain all the way to death and hell. Jesus can sympathise with any sin you struggle with because he struggled with temptation right to the end. And this is why this is such a wonderful passage. This is why it is so wonderful that Jesus is the great high priest because he is not a distant high priest. He is a high priest who knows your battles and so he is sympathetic. He doesn't sit up there in the heavens and and say, what's wrong with these hopeless people? He doesn't sigh and roll his eyes at us and look away from our struggles. He is the Son of God in the heavens, yet he totally understands us. And I think that is the most wonderful reality. That leads us to the two great conclusions of this passage. And as I said before, this is why this is so practical and why it's so relevant. Because Jesus is the Son of God, who stands in the presence of God for all time, having made the great sacrifice for our sin. And because Jesus was tempted in every way and yet did not sin and so can sympathise with our weakness, because of that, there are two conclusions. Firstly, verse 14, let us hold fast to the confession. And then secondly, verse 16, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Let's look at each of those. First of all, hold fast to the confession. Oh, didn't get there. There you go. There it is. The wonderful news is that Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. That is our confession. When it says hold fast to your confession, that's what it's talking about. What you believe about Jesus. The wonderful news that He is your Lord, He is your Saviour, that He died for your sins so you can be forgiven, that He has made a place for you in His kingdom. That's our confession. And right from the start of this book, the message has been, hold fast to that confession. Persevere in your faith. Keep trusting Jesus. And here is that same message again. And not to give it away, you're going to get that same message again and again in the book of Hebrews. You see, here he is saying to us though, Jesus will help you hold fast. See, that's what he's adding here. You have a great high priest helping you. Jesus is in your corner. He is for you, so don't give up. Hold fast to him. And then the second conclusion, so approach God with boldness. Remember at the start I said, if you think you can just march into the presence of God, you are a fool. If you think you can just march into the heavenly throne room in your own strength and power, you are a fool. But with Jesus as our great high priest, we can do just that. We can approach the holy God with confidence. And if we do... He will help us to stand firm. 
He will help us to resist the temptations and the trials of this world. Look again at verse 16. It says, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. This verse often gets quoted as a promise about prayer, as a general promise about how we can uh, approach God through Jesus. That's why we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray to the Father through the Son because he is our mediator, because he is our priest. But here the focus is actually more specific than that. It's not just a general promise about prayer. The promise here is that he will show us mercy and grace in our weakness. This is a promise that when we are struggling with temptation, we can still approach God with confidence because what we are tempted to do is the opposite, isn't it? When we're tempted to sin, we think, well, I don't want to go anywhere near God. He won't want anything to do with me. But this is a promise the opposite. When you are tempted with sin, march in through your mediator to the throne of God and he will show you grace and mercy. When we are tested and tempted, our temptation is to do one of two things. Just give in, just do it, it's easier than resisting. That's one temptation, just feel hopeless. But the other temptation is to think, I can do it on my own. I can stand in my own strength. Neither is right. The right thing is to approach the throne of grace with confidence, seeking Jesus' grace and mercy. Jesus forgives us in our failure, but he also promises to help us stand. And this is why this is such wonderful news. Jesus doesn't stand there and judge us. He sympathizes with us and helps us. So when we are overcome with despair and we are not certain what to do, pray through Jesus and ask for God to help you stand firm. When you are tempted to burst out in anger and you feel helpless, pray through Jesus and ask for God to help you maintain your composure. When you're tempted to click on that website and you already feel dirty doing it, it's not inevitable. Pray through Jesus and ask him to give you self-control. When you are tempted to make that scathing comment about that other person, pray through Jesus and ask for God to help you speak a word of love instead. Jesus is for you. Jesus sympathizes with you and that means we can approach him with boldness and know we can receive his mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And I think that is the most wonderful truth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are not left separated from you, but instead we have Jesus, our great high priest, who has made the sacrifice once for all for our sin so that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And so, Father, we pray and give you thanks that even in our weakness, Jesus can sympathise with us. We thank you that he is for us and he can give us the help we need in our time of need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.